Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 119 of the podcast. Today, I'll be talking with James G., Regents Professor and Mary Lou Fulton Presidential Professor of Literacy Studies at Arizona State University. His books, amongst so many others, are... Introducing Discourse Analysis from Grammar to Society, Routledge 2018, and What is a Human? Language, Mind, and Culture, Palgrave Macmillan 2020. Texts cohere. They're not stable. If I claim a text is stable, then I am saying that it may bend, but it will not break. So, for instance, This scientific paper in a peer-reviewed journal is an original contribution to some field. The knowledge attained to therein by the authors takes its place in the advancement of the field. This paper stands fast because its content stands fast too. That is the meaning of contribution to the field. That is the proper functioning of the system of scientific publishing. Here is stability. This stable text of science, well is a nice picture for what it's worth, only the problem is, it's not how the matter truly goes. In actual fact, any field, every field in the research of science is not stable, not like that anyway. No, fields of science, rather than stand as such, they cohere. If the picture of standing is the image of a tree, because we think of a tree as rooted and sturdy and in place, because we see how trees will weather storms not by changing or going or, if you will, seeking shelter, but a tree bends and then when the winds have subsided, that tree stands tall again exactly as it had before and exactly where it had before. And the tree that breaks, well, it stops being a tree at all, really, doesn't it? Because it broke. And we gather its fallen limbs, we knock down its damaged trunk, we sweep the open space clear of debris, and during the cold months we burn the firewood we've thus collected, forgetting the prior tree which is to us now a diminishing stack of warm days and nights in winter. So, I was saying, if that is the tree, stability, then the picture of holding together is the nest of a bird in the tree's branches. Have you seen the things that'll end up in a bird's nest? I saw in one fallen specimen, a bird's nest from days gone by, a Milky Way wrapper. I have to say my imagination got the better of me as I pictured the bird mother brooding, and she shakes her beaked head at the impossible ingredients in such a thing as a candy bar, but content knowing that her fledglings would eat only the finest worms the local ground had on offer. Anyway, all imagining aside... A nest is indeed a conglomerate construction that, though it will be clearly recognizable as a nest, does in other ways defy strict definition. I mean, since really a nest is just a whole bunch of other materials brought in place, 
blades of grass, strings of thread, wrappers of candy bars, than to decide definitively what exactly a nest is or where its nestness begins and ends, that is not such an easy thing to do. Just take the example of the old fallen nest I'd seen with the wrapper entwined as part of it. I mean, really, what was keeping me from just seeing it as a clump of mud and litter? Well, probably just the fact that I know that birds do the work each year of turning bits of everything into coherent masses, which we call their homes, nests. The tree, by way of contrast, is not coherent like that. The tree is stable. It's a tree when it is standing, and fallen, it is a stack of wood. The tree is gone. The bird's nest, however, is only gone when we say it is. Just think how odd it sounds to say of a wood pile... That is ten trees. That's not how we measure wood, because when the tree has ceased and the firewood has commenced, what we see there is entirely different and we call it so. That is ten cord of wood. With the nest, on the other hand, such definitiveness is not there. Even a shred or scrap of a thing once a nest is enough for us to wage a, it's a nest. Sure, we also may say it still is a nest, but either way, that scrap or shred is coherent enough in its one-time purpose and form for us to recognize in it bird's nestness. And so, by way of this extended analogy, I return to my actual point. Cohere hits the mark better for scientific texts than does is stable. Everything I said before about contribution of knowledge, about advancement of knowledge, about record of knowledge... None of that stable talk really says what papers in the publishing of science are like. The apt description is, they are bird's nests. Any scientific paper will be an amalgamation of ideas accepted as fact, of views on such ideas, of methods for ideas testing, and of results from such testing of those ideas. With that sort of a makeup, who'd wonder at finding amongst the lines of a paper some candy wrapper stuck in? But seriously, my point here is that such an amalgamate construction as the paper does not lend itself to talk of stability, and nor does the content which all this amalgamation is meant to convey, or perhaps better, meant to shape and construe for readers, nor does that content lend itself either to talk of stability. Scientific fields do not, at least in current views of the endeavor, simply amass facts and store these facts away in the published record. No, science is debate and discussion. Science is consensus and disagreement. And therefore, science uses its publishing arm, amongst such other eminently practical purposes as determining who does and who does not deserve promotion and funding, science uses the business of its publishing also in order to give space for the bids of research content to cohere to the fields that research belongs in. And these bids are the scientific papers themselves. What I mean is, each and every paper is one research group's attempt at bringing their findings in line with, or in some connection with, the relevant work in their field. However, this bringing in, commonly called simply publishing, is no simple, straightforward, direct matter. I mean, who's to say what any set of results in a machine learning implementation or in a molecular biological experimentation have in common with the currently interesting results in research on machine learning or on molecular biology?
I mean, what even are those interesting results currently? Define current. Define interesting. Well, I'll leave that activity to you in the context of your own field of research, because the point I'm attempting to illustrate here is field abstracted. That is to say, if I'm making my point right, then my point should apply more broadly than just to molecules and machines. I want to say that interest and currency in the research of all scientific fields are how the research coheres. And any group's results and publication of results will fit more or less well in the thinking of their field according to as those results and that publication fit in the writing of their field. Research makes a bid to fit in the current debates and challenges in the interesting topics and questions of a field. And mind, to fit can also mean to fit differently, which is just another way of saying, in some important fashion, the research actually does not fit. But that's just the bid that is being made. This research should fit, so something else in the field needs to change. All this that I'm talking about here is a question of cohering to, not of stabilizing in. Coherence is the very essence of a paper, as it is the essence of a field of the research. And it is cohere too, all throughout a paper, not just at this community or contextual level that I've been touching upon here. But the paper level is prime object for discourse analysis, and my guest today is a discourse analyst. Jim G's long and distinguished career started in theoretical linguistics and the philosophy of language, and then continued in social linguistics, discourse analysis, literacy studies, learning theory, and digital media and learning. So, Jim G is just the person to talk to when the question is about discourse from print of science to the knowledge of science. The uh, contrast between stability and coherence, it actually fits with a very big theme in my current work. Uh, so, if, and, the, and a nest is a very good example of what you're calling coherence. Uh, I have in the back, I live on a farm and I have in the back of my property a bald eagle's nest. They build <laughs> extremely large nests and they keep making them larger every year. And if you watch them build this nest and they start putting the sticks together and the nest starts to come together, you can't comprehend how it's going to stay up there. Right? No human could do it. So they just fall through the branches. And as they put it together, why does it even stick together? It's just sticks. And what's been discovered is the combination of the way they build and what they put in there and the wind creates a complex system in which the nest begins to stick together and cohere in a way we can barely understand, right? It's a emergent property of the nest uh, in its environment and in the way the eagle, eagles have built it, something we couldn't do because we don't understand exactly how that property can work at least unless we're a scientist and try to study it. So you get a miracle there. It's, it stands, it's a miracle of coherence and that it can withstand all sorts of forces on it and still keep its shape, its basic shape. Of course, it has flexibility. Now, that's the upside of coherence. And you're completely right. That's what good science is doing, is creating a coherent interlocking set of ideas that are flexible enough but still stable enough to lead us to good predictions. 
the downside of that nest is uh, it is it can't withstand conditions that are completely novel, right? It it is built for an environment that it is fit in for a long, long time, and if that changes radically enough, that coherence disappears, right? And the same thing can happen in science. Now, why this is relevant to my work is, and uh, is that. Uh, most of what humans do are based on social conventions. That is, we agree through years of practice and culture on how to do things to be effective. And uh, over time, in the context we're normally in, they work well, well enough to go on to survive, sometimes to make us flourish. However, when those contexts change, when the, the convention is now in a context it was never prepared for, it becomes dangerous, becomes bad, it becomes unproductive. Again, the same thing can happen in science. When a coherent theory is faced with radically new data, radically new contexts or ways of thinking, it falls apart. Right. So this is our dilemma. We can't get along without social conventions. Science is a set of social conventions. By the way, so is speaking language. But social conventions have their limit in the context that gave them birth. And what's radically changed today is we're living in so many different areas, in science, in language, in everyday life. We're living in radically new contexts where more and more our social conventions do not work well even though they were coherent for our past. And this makes it hard for us to give them up because we're used to them working. And then we face contexts where they break down and we have little understanding what to do about it. This, this idea of context, I, I find interesting. I, I've recently come up against the idea, and I don't know where exactly it came from. I'm not going to say it's mine, but that uh, we've often talked about there being too much information in the world, yeah, TMI, it's even got one of those abbreviations. But I'm getting the sense that there's too much communication. And if I might just explain a little bit what I mean, because it, it, it may seem banal at first, um, it's essentially the, um, th th there's this concept uh, of, of participation, which um, uh, Bill Cope and Mary Colanzi's expand upon in, in one of their recent publications, where you have a sort of a three zone process involved in meaning being passed between people. You've got the representation side, which is somewhat individual. You've got the communication side, which is a little bit different than what people typically think. What they are referring to is it's given a material form. I often say it's just been made available, right? It's in the form of a text. It's in the form of sound waves, whatever it might be. And then you've got on the other end, what they call interpretation, which is kind of another form of representation. They even say at one point, it's a re-representation um, because the process is iterative and convoluted and all kinds of things. And, and, and to get back to the point, uh, because the, your, your talk of context makes me, especially context nowadays and in the context of your book, What is Human?, um, it seems like the context has become this massive expansion of communication in this Cope and Kalanzi sense, where we just have a massive amount of availability being put there, right? All kinds of possible um, things that someone might be able to read, see, watch, feel, smell, whatever, right? But with not necessarily, and it's almost as if it's taking over the abilities of interpretation and representation to, to do their normal work as well, to, to, to participate in the entire process. 
Right. Uh, there's two things there that you're saying important and they're different. So one is if we talk about the proliferation of messages, that is text, images and all this stuff that can communicate. We talk about that. We course live in a world where that has gone out of hand altogether. And what that challenges is the human concept of relevance, right? Humans have limited attention spans, not only short term, but even in how much uh, information they can uh, take in in order to do a task because they got to get going. They can't learn everything before they can do a task. They have to make a choice about what information, what knowledge is relevant. When you are faced with this proliferation of possible messages, like, for example, the database that chat GPT has and all that it can say to you, it, it overtaxes any standards of relevance you have. What is relevant to, uh, to listen to? Which should I do first? What should I pay attention to? It overtaxes human attention. Um, and humans, by the way, when they can't really make good relevance judgments or don't know what they should attend to, do tend to become pretty stupid, right? It makes us, we, we're not very good in those situations. So that that's a major problem. Uh, it's getting worse and worse. It will get worse. Some people take advantage of it, right? Because uh, if you don't know what to pay attention to, they, then they try, they use titillation, whatever titillates you, whatever most trivially titillates you, then turns on your short 10 attention span. Of course, we're living in that uh, in a huge amount of way. The second problem we have, though, is, is a, a perhaps even deeper one. Human beings, uh, con you know, discourse analysts say, have the phrase, context is king. All meaning is contextual. All deep meaning is contextual. And so when I want to understand you, I have to share a context with you to a certain extent. I have to make judgments about who you are, what you know and what I don't know, what experiences you've had. And my words and your words are interpreted in that context. And if I find out something radically different about that context, it'll change the meanings of the word that I assign to your words. And it'll change the meanings I want to give you. Now, through human history, humans, human language was really made originally to where people communicated and had very deeply shared culture and context, right? A hunter-gathering society, everybody knew what everybody else knew. Language was not primarily to give the news. Everybody knew the same stuff. It was to engage in shared social work and efforts to collaborate to get things done. That was the great power it had. Now, when we start communicating as modern humans to more and more people that we know less and less about, Communication works more poorly unless we can learn about them and get contextual information about them and share experience with them. Then if we can't, communication breaks down. And what we're seeing in the modern world is not only are we forced to communicate uh, and interact with people whose context we do not understand uh, and don't share, but the forces around us the ones we just talked about of the over proliferation of messages and lots of messages that are just propaganda or titillating uh, give us a false sense of context about those people. And so communication at that level is imperiled as well. And we've never been really good at it. For all the people that want to stress, oh, diversity is very important, and it is. Humans are not good at communicating in a context 
where they don't really understand much about the other people, right? Communication between strangers is difficult. That's why, of course, in modern cultures like in America and other places, we begin to make assumptions about each other as shared Americans. So the guy at the bar that I'm trying to talk to is no longer a stranger. I'm putting him in the context of American culture. Then I can communicate with him. Well, for Americans, that's harder and harder to do because we no longer have shared assumptions about what American culture is, right? So I can sit at the bar with a Trump supporter and have a very hard time understanding the context we're in and communicating to with words that mean similar things to each other. So in both of these senses, the overproliferation of potential messages and then the inability to assign meanings and shared context, we are in a time of crisis. And that crisis, um, as you were saying, uh, and, and this, this set us off into this exploration of context, is, is occurring also in science. And I'm thinking particularly Absolutely. of, I'm thinking particularly of the researcher to researcher communication level, a biologist to a biologist, a computer scientist to a computer scientist. I mean, just just two things occurred to me as you as you did this uh, really interesting de- delineation of, of of context in these two uh, uh, different aspects. On the titillation side, for instance, it was interesting to me that you said a context which is entirely novel is going to be, let's say, the downside of coherence in scientific discourse because that that then you know throws things out of way. It, it throws the nest out of the tree, if you want to use the metaphor, right? Um, and it's really interesting because there seems to be then titillation going on even in the most specialized of discourses because for instance novel is the the grand word that occurs at the you know in the abstract or in the beginning of an introduction of nearly every research article right our contribution is the novel finding is and so on and so forth and yet what exactly does novel mean there then well that's a very good question because in the standard science that we've which has been very successful but is really coming to an end it was based on deep specialization. It wasn't based on disciplines, but sub-disciplines and sub-sub-disciplines. You know, when I, when I started linguistics, it would be Chomsky, it would be done it all again. So there was a brief stage in which it was just linguistics. Pretty soon as you proliferate my knowledge, people become a specialist on pronouns, right? All you study is pronouns, right? And so modern science really had its... Uh, great achievements through this very hyper-specialization. But when you've hyper-specialized, there isn't really a lot of novelty. If you look at a a stable scientific specialty, that most people can predict what the journal article says. You know, when when I, in the old days, read articles and theoretical syntax, you don't really actually read all the words. You look at the diagrams, you see the abstract, you know exactly uh, where the guy's going because you share so much with him in knowledge. And then you look at his conclusion. And what it is, it's a tiny increment in the field. It's a brick in a wall, right? This form, and so it's, it's if you like, it's, it's a social convention. People agree on the methods. They agree on how to start their article. The methodology sections could have been written by a computer, right? It's not novel. And that's really its power. The power is it's building incrementally on a base everybody shares. Now, 
we've reached a limit in a lot of areas to that because the danger is in each little silo you don't know what the other silos did right you're if you're studying just pronouns and linguistics maybe there's a result in a, in, a, in another area that you don't read because it's not your specialty that would change the very context in which you looked at pronouns and then you would lose your coherence and so today the big results are coming by people working together to cross silos and what you're seeing is it changing the context of many of the subspecialties where they have to grow a larger theory and have uh, where novelty gets much more novel where it's a much bigger change now you certainly have seen this in the history of modern physics is it stabilizes every once in a while people say these are really well understood things and then all of a sudden a new result in cosmology or in astrophysics or in nuclear physics comes out and totally changes the context because information in an area you didn't study became hyper relevant all of a sudden to you it became a context for yours so in in what we're looking at now in science is the cutting edge is where you've got to have deep specialty still skills but you must be able to combine it with other people's deep specialties in other areas to create a larger picture and a larger method, speaking to what people call a hard problem. That is a complex problem that can't be solved through one lens. That's where most cutting edge science is doing today. And it's in part pushed by the fact that we face across the world, huge complex systems going out of control, climate change, environmental degradation, civilizational uh, wars, political polarization human stupidity we're facing these very complex interacting systems and no one specialty can leverage anything about them right? so as science has kind of hit its limits of these sub limits of these subspecialties the world is out of control and needs the, this larger science of crossing silos but in part the world is out of control because we were not very good until recently at dealing with these complex systems especially when, uh, when they were social and political uh, and environmental and not just in physics right we were not as good and that has become a crucial issue now because these systems are what putting us out of control yeah yeah and i, I mean what you what you say there about uh, context is i mean it just goes to the heart of what this podcast is about because i mean it it, it raises for me the question okay then how should scientists from their different silos, even if they're neighboring, right? They know that the other silo is right next to them. Um, how is it that they then need to share their context? Because, I mean, this is something that's very much on researchers' minds as they write uh, their articles. They have to work they with each other. They have to, they have to get out of their silos and they, and they become teams. So you see in neuroscience today where there's been you know, an immense amount of uh, progress, I think, that, that people people are work, come from silos of, of uh, psychology, neuroscience, computer science, philosophy, and they actually talk together, work together, and they begin to share, you know, share some skills. By the way, it's just like you remember, you know, in modern workplaces when we used to have more of them, there was a concept of a cross-functional team. 
that you didn't want, you know, so in your, if you were designing circuits, you wanted to get a team with your marketing person, your design person, your manufacturing person, your engineer, and you wanted to get them together and you wanted them to understand enough of each other's expertise to pull your own with it. So the team was smarter than the smartest person in it. Right. And this is how modern work began to reorganize around cross-functional teams. By the way, it's exactly how a video game, when you're on a five-person team in a video game, you don't take five people with the same skills. You take five people with different skills. They have to integrate them. They have to understand enough about each other's skills to coordinate. And then you have a powerful team. So these cross-functional teams, that's what's going on in science, too. You're putting together a cross-functional team. And that team, for example, each person brings their own methods from their subspecialty. But they have to also be aware of the other people's methods and then integrate them and sometimes invent new methods for the team, right? That's common today in science. It's what's going on all over. Sadly, we don't do it very well when we're dealing with social and political issues. You know, Chomsky argued a long time ago uh, that, you know, for some reason, humans are pretty good at doing physics and chemistry. There's no good evolutionary reason for that, because back in the day of hunting and gatherers, knowing uh, physics wasn't going to be a survival skill. But for whatever reason, the human brain evolved to be able to be pretty good at uh, physics and chemistry. It seems not to evolve to be very good at understanding political and social affairs. We have nothing like the depth of understanding there we do in physics and chemistry. And, and that may just be an artifact of the human mind. Uh, it doesn't mean we can't overcome it with good teamwork and collaboration, but it really means that for humans, these social, political, and by the way, even aesthetic problems we face are much harder for us than, let's say, physics or chemistry are. You're uh, offering a very uh, insightful look into, you know, the scientific communities, which, you know, need to then uh, collaborate on, on team levels. And, and, and indeed, there are areas where that collaboration excels. Uh, there are obviously lots of hiccups, roadblocks and hurdles inside of, of, of collaboration as well. But I'm interested in pulling down what you've just talked about on that uh, team level in the, in the team formation into the grammar. Um, as a discourse analysis yourself, Jim, um, how would you say for the for the writing of science into a research article, you know, a field like biology, um, you know, chemistry, neuroscience, as you were suggesting, how good a resource is the written language for this this building of context or, or what resources in the language are there for that building of context in in that setting? Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's been an eternal philosophical question. You really probably can't answer it of whether human language is good for communication or not. Uh, do, do, by and large, do we communicate successfully, don't we? And there's people who argue that it's not good for communication. In fact, it was never designed for it. So some people think it was designed for social work, getting things done. Chomsky thinks language arose to facilitate human thinking, not human communication. Others say it, it rose explicitly for human communication. So there's really deep disagreement here. We could not really judge whether it was good or bad unless we could stand outside of it. And we really can't do that. But, uh, it, but let me say, in science, when you're dealing with the sort of specialties, the specialty journals, um, 
that that isn't really where the main communication goes on. That's the results of tons of work. That article came after all sorts of arguments, discussions in oral language, all sorts of writing done in other settings, all sorts of lab meetings, right? And and what you saw is just the little uh, filter of that that's left and put into the journal. See, and then we take that as science, the journal of science. This is really was Latour's point, but that's just a little artifact. So if you want to know how well communication works in science, you can't take these journal articles because at one level, they only work well to communicate with people who already know almost everything in the article, right? They're only for so-called experts, right? And if they're going to argue, they, you know, they, they're as likely to argue in the lab as they are in, in the journal. Um, so if you, if you want to look at science communication, you've got to look at science as an activity. That is people talking in these teams, people creating new information, getting the ideas for the articles and doing uh, the research and um, how, how well the process works. Uh, and that, you know, you brought this up earlier when you said, well, you know, these teams, it's a mixed bag. They don't always work. Look, science is a human activity that is meant to be done collaboratively. So we, co we correct each other's biases. Science at heart is you coming to the table with other people, not hiding your biases, not even trying to get rid of them, but knowing that everybody at the table has a different bias than you. And then when you argue that out, create shared methods to test it, we hope the biases are all mitigated, right? Yours can't win because they won't give in to you. Theirs can't win because you won't give in to them. Then the process is supposed to give us something that is the least biased we can get, right? That's the fundamental process of science, not the journals. That's the fundamental process of science. It's up against the fact that like every human thing, science is also a social and political institution. I'm sure you've followed the tremendous uh, critique of the peer review system, of, of the, the standard statistics, the P-significant statistics we use, massive critiques over how this is done, and yet it stays coherent in the system. It doesn't collapse, right? Because it's, it's not functioning because it's really giving us deep knowledge anymore. It's functioning because it's part of the routine. So the question you're asking is, is it too big to answer because it's really the question of how science works as an activity, not how the journals communicate it. Now, if we just take the journals as communication, there's very interesting work. Uh, Greg Myers did some of this very early on how scientists communicate when they're in a journal, how the same scientist will communicate when he's writing in a popular science article, and then how he would communicate to everyday people. Right? There's examples of this, and the, the, you can ask the scientists to say, put together the very same ideas and theory, and when you look at the language he uses for those three different contexts, they don't seem to even mean the same thing. Right? The, the context has changed, the message changed, and what the scientist does changes. So the system is very complex, and there's lots of different issues in it. Indeed, yeah. I mean, and and, and this, <laughs> I, I listened very closely to the, to the description you give there of how the communication is really in the 
activities, right? In the lab between mm -hmm. the scientists and so on. And, right, yeah. you know, that, that helped me reorient a bit, it, it, but the, but the, the matter seems so complex because I very much agree. And, and I'm familiar also with Latour's work and I understand very much yeah. where you're coming from that this is, um, you know, one article, 7,000 words is, is not the entire finding. I, I, and the amount of data that's that's produced on any study is, you know, would vastly explode any particular article, although the supplementary materials on many different articles are becoming va vast right. and massive in themselves. Right. But, right. but that's, a, that's, that, that, that's a whole other matter. But but what, what I'm driving at is, is that there still seems, though, to be, I mean, there's a necessity for the article in science because of the fact that our you know ability to communally cooperate is limited by physical distances time and and other such right. uh, uh, you know constraints on on how we might cooperate and the other thing that occurs to me is that there is new knowledge that even the specialists are sharing with each other, even if it's just like, uh, because your practice, as you said, of the, the highly specialized person reading through an article in a way that's not what we would normally consider reading. It, it's, it's, uh -huh, right. uh -huh, yes. uh -huh. ah, there's the point, right? So right. this there, there's the point, this new bit of knowledge is indeed informative to certain specialists. Sure. So in other words, they, they, they needed to have found that. And what I observe, my, my work, as my listeners will know, is, is, is helping scientists write. What I observe is that there's not always complete comprehension in those moments. Very often you find somebody inside, deep inside of an article in the results section, confused by what's meant. And this is a specialist to a specialist. Right. Right. But see, that's that's a change that happened some time ago in science. So look at if you look at how uh, in the hard sciences articles are written, they're in standard conventional sections. One section is methodology. Right. It has to be there. They're not going to accept it if it isn't there. The methodology section is written in very formulaic language. And it, the point of it used to be just what you're saying. I'm going to show you my method so you could do it yourself. You could check me. That was its original point. Science became so complicated that the methodologies cannot be spelled out that way. So in most of these fields, in fact, they sometimes print the methodology section in very tiny print. No one thinks for these articles you could read that and know what they didn't do it. And what happens is if you're in the club, if you're in the group of people who do this science, you call the guy up and you ask to see. You ask to go to the lab. You ask, this happened, by the way, in the cold fusion uh, controversy where we thought cold fusion worked. People ultimately went to the lab. So the fact is it, the specialist does not, in some of these fields, expect to understand the methodology directly from and the craft that went into it. They have to ask. They get into the oral discussion. They go to the lab. Um, and, you know, some of this stuff, when they're doing experiments, it's almost craft-based. You go and you try to find out exactly what did you do? How did you do it? What's your insider knowledge? So, in fact, that section is, is just formulaic in some cases. It's really not meant to communicate. It's meant to um, signal to the field you did the right stuff and the insiders uh, go and find out. But, you know, this is an important point I want to add, though, here. When you're talking about any human enterprise like science, they operate by the Pareto principle. So in any field, uh, basically 10% of the people produce 90% of the articles. 
right? And the 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 top one percent of that ten percent produces most of it, right? That that's the Pareto principle. So in any field, while there may be thousands of researchers, only a couple of hundred of them are producing most of the work. And at that level, the field is an oral culture. Those people know each other. They talk to each other all the time. And, they are, and they, they're not relying on the journal article per se to get the point. They're relying on this ongoing discussion they're having. This, this is one reason why fields broke into such small subspecialties. Now, people have pointed out it's intriguing, this number, that in, in these enterprises, it's you know, about 150, 200 people max that are producing most of the work that there are studies in social science that show that that's the maximum number of people a human being can know well enough to interact with well right there seems to be this limit on human beings and the pareto principle that you know it says small numbers do most stuff uh, applies in these areas and produces just about that number. I can certainly tell you that as a theoretical linguist, since I started when Chomsky started, and therefore the field was beginning again, that oral culture was probably less than significantly less than 100 people. And at the time, articles were being produced so fast that if you waited for them to be published, you were completely out of it. You needed to know that article tomorrow for your work because the field was progressing so fast. And the only way you got that article if you were in that group of people, because then they sent it to you or you could ask for it. In this day, it would have been a ditto or a mimeograph, but you asked for it. So if people who were not in that group could be very smart, but actually excluded from the knowledge because they had to wait for the journal article. And by the way, this any field that's not Mordeban, if it's fast advancing, which is not most of them, that you, no one waits till the journal article comes out. It's way too late for them to be able to use it. They know it long before it comes out. It's, it's, it's just absolutely fascinating what you say there because it, it, it lines up so interestingly, this this Pareto principle with with hard findings that I've explored with other guests on this program. Um, for exa example, uh, Wang and Barabashi, who, who wrote a, a great book called Science of Science, and they, they, they really pointed up exactly these numbers that you're talking about, by the way, first off. And, and, and they pointed up also the idea that it's kind of um, an exception amongst other areas in, in human life where there's competition. For example, in, in, in professional sports, usually, let's say the best sprinters are, you know, milliseconds apart from each other, right? They're winning by the smallest of margins and so on. And yet in science what we have is just these massive gaps, you know? Um, I mean, it's very enlightening though, the way that you put it, put it into a social context, um, because I am seeing that forming. I mean, you notice these networks that form around the best and most published scientists in, in particular sub-disciplines. That's well, most, yeah. so, so it's, it's probably the probability of winning a Nobel prize is goes way up. If you were ever worked in the lab of another Nobel prize winner. These are communities. Now, the reason that these gaps are big in science and not, in, and not as big in the times and spreading is the feedback effect. If you're in this culture of 100 people, constantly sharing and knowing each other, going to dinner with each other, finding out what people are thinking, uh, you keep getting smarter and smarter, and the people not in it keep getting farther and farther behind. 
the gap just creates because you don't have access. You know, science is filled with people that weren't in the club and did incredibly good work that only now discovered later. You know, it's, it's kind of a Cunian thing. What puts the club out of business is when somebody who's not in it changes the whole paradigm. And now the club's irrelevant. Now, they don't sit around and die. As, as has been said, science changes when the old guys die, right? They don't give up. They do. They guard the gates. But their day is over. So it's not that the the club can be very innovative, but at a certain time it can ritualize, incept its theories, guard the gate so no one else gets in. And that's when the paradigm change is going to happen. Somebody from the outside will eventually have information. that the See, in in the Pareto principle, when we say that uh, 10% produce 90%, that doesn't mean somebody who produced very little didn't do something outrageously good right it just means they're never going to get the publicity and the clout that the people producing the rest of the stuff it's very important that science pays attention to the people who are not contributing in the top 10 percent because one of them could be a genius but the power of science as an institution a political institution sometimes excludes people like the people for example who didn't go to a if you got your degree at a less prestigious school, <clears throat> you didn't get a prestigious postdoc. Now you're sitting out there at a, in a teaching job, not a research job, and obviously you're not going to produce all you know as much work as a guy at Princeton. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're not you're not a pretty smart guy. And if we don't look, we can lose a lot of stuff. And, and I, I thought this, and when I turned to education. You know, and I was uh, on a, a member of the National Academy, and we, the one thing we do is give out these pretty prestigious uh, postdocs to people. And it dawned on me as we were doing it, you know, that we constantly gave the postdocs to the people who had got their PhDs from the most prestigious institutions. If you didn't go to the most prestigious institution, even if your proposal looked really good, time and again, you didn't win, right? We were replicating the same 10%. Yeah, I mean these over. these biases have been discovered in 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 very. I mean, you're giving firsthand experience. Uh, they've they've been shown up in all kinds of places, and 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 and, and this is really the important point. Well, I, because this is my professional commitment, but this is also part of uh, the reason why I even do this podcast. Is I mean, you mentioned the education. Um, it is a little bit in the mindset of, of, of Halliday and James Martin and the other of, uh, systemic functionalists, of uh, particularly James Martin and the people he worked with, that if you're trying to take a disadvantaged or a peripheral group and bring them into a position where they can use discourse in such a way that they may actually bring more fairness into uh, their community, and that's kind of what we're talking about here in the scientific context, well, then you teach them the majority discourse. You break it down for them such that uh, um, in a way that, you know, they're able to use it because then they can enter in. So, I mean, in in the context that you've just been talking about and context here is back, um, we have then people who are... uh, from outside of that uh, R1 research university type area, and they're being brought in because of, let's say, the way that they can write. In other words, they are able to put that proposal down or put that uh, manuscript down on an editor's desk in such a way that it actually speaks directly like 
the people who are speaking in a way that are bringing them up into the 10, what, 10%. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad to see you bring up Jim Martin. He was a very good friend of mine and a great linguist. Um, the thing is that he's, he's absolutely right. It is crucial you know the language. That is the language of the group. In fact, one Corb, I asked one biologist once, a very good one, you know, how much biology do you need to know to be in your lab? And she said, not much. You just need to know the beginnings of the language. Then we will sit around a table and talk. You will learn the language and you'll learn biology. But the difficulty is this. Here you have in these people applying for postdocs, they are writing proposals that are close to the right language, right? They're not quite on it, but they're, they're close. And, and so you could argue this one reason to give this person the postdoc, it will let them in the club and they will quickly acquire the, the language, right? They, they're the ones who will benefit by most because if they just made that final step, maybe this is going to be a winner. But the institution of status and stuff then mitigates that. So it, Martin is certainly right about uh, what we've got to teach, and we've got to teach it in a way that we pay attention to it, not just take it for granted, which is his point. But he, he, his, the work you're citing isn't, doesn't pay enough attention to the social and political context that must be changed as well. You know, when I did this, I tried to argue for this, and I gave them and said, I don't know if you're an American football fan, but there's a man named Johnny Unitas that is his nickname was Mr. Football. He's considered the greatest. I've heard, I've heard the name. <laughs> he's, great, he's considered the greatest quarterback ever to have played in professional football. And here's how he got in football. He was at University of Pittsburgh. He was a quarterback, and he didn't get drafted because the scouting report said he was too small and too stupid to play football. So he was playing what we call sandlot football. He's in little community playing kind of amateur football. And the Baltimore Colts at the time, a very big team, uh, their, their quarterbacks were both injured. And they had to do a game. And they had third stringer was going to start. But they needed somebody in the bench. Somebody mentioned to the uh, manager, there's this guy who plays sandlot football. I saw he's pretty good. He put a dime in a phone and he called Johnny Unitas and said, we need you. We need somebody in the bench. We'll pay you to be in the bench. If you ever play, we might give you a contract, but we just need you up here. Well, lo and behold, he comes up, sits on the bench, and third string quarterback is injured. They put him in the game, and the first pass he throws is an interception, is scored touchdown for the other team. Pretty disastrous. <laughs> the second pass he threw was the beginning of the best career ever by an American football now, my titled little paper I wrote about giving people a chance, just drop a dime. It cost them 10 cents to get Johnny United. It wouldn't cost much for us to occasionally pick uh, somebody like this, right? They might turn out to be Johnny United. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that, I, mean I, I, I take your point very much that, you know, uh, a change in the system is necessary. Actually, I mean, the system is, is impersonalized. A change in people's thinking and particularly in people's actions is, is what's right. needed. You know, I mean, one person needs to make, make a different decision one time. But to if I, if I might roll it back again once more to this idea on an educational level of teaching, let's say, you know, postdocs or even graduate students of uh, the discourse of their uh, particular subcommunity, where where it is that they want to be, you know, a well-cited, well-reputed member. Um, 
I find that one of the things that is being missing is missed by very many of these, um, you know, budding scientists is that they spend tremendous effort in trying to write about instead of realizing that what they need to do is write to or toward people. And I, I wonder if that is um, a basic distinction that rings true for you. It, it does ring true to me. But remember, uh, if I'm in this uh, 100 or 200 people, I know exactly who I'm writing to, right? If I'm, um, you know, one of the people who produces a small amount of work, but at least I'm, you know, close enough to the 100 to read their stuff and do it, I probably know, uh, I probably have some good concept of who I'm communicating. If I'm a person that's, you know, not just, you know, I didn't go to the right places, I didn't get the right stuff. I, 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 I know how the language sounds, I've read it, but I don't have a good view of who it is I'm communicating with. Just like everyday life. If you have no idea who I am, all you can do is put together words, right? Uh, and so, um, so, you know, that's, that's one point. <clears throat> but another point to I think years ago I was involved in a, <clears throat> pardon me, a, a very competitive. This is probably not true in Germany, but we went through a stage where about how do you how do you uh, teach science to young children, right? And I was part of a movement that said that the language of science is not arbitrary. It's not. It's it's as Halliday argued, it, it didn't evolve to exclude people. It evolved because it was efficient for the job of doing science. And therefore, it's a tool. And therefore, it's important the kids in learning science learn the language of science, not just do science, because it's like you don't want to teach somebody to be a carpenter, but don't teach them how to use a hammer. Now, a whole because we have a very big emphasis on cultural diversity here and the cultural and racial inequalities that we have in the United States, a group of educators came along and argued that it was wrong to insist that children learn the language of science, which, you know, by the way, is an academic language. It's an, a formal language. It's not an informal vernacular because they were behind in it. And what we should just do is teach them science and let them use the vernacular, not, not make any big deal about the language of science. It's a huge debate. You know, you were always in danger if you were arguing that language of science was crucial to learning science, that it would look like you were against diversity. But what, you know, actually happens in a case like that is the child is de-skilled because you've taken away from them the very uh, tools and credentials that would have allowed them to go further in science, right? Allowed them to have an opportunity to have uh, a degree or, or a career in science, in my view. Yeah, I mean, so, most certainly. They, they are, so to, part of learn now scientists are bad about this themselves because they will often say, oh, science is just thoughts, thinking, ideas. The language is irrelevant. Uh, that's, in my view, completely wrong. Uh, the language you fall. So, and of course, you see this in physics. Eventually, they caught on that in English and other languages aren't very good at all for physics. And most of it is in mathematics. Now, so the point is that uh, you, the language of science has to be taught, as Martin said. It, it's not that you lay it out like grammar rules on the board. You teach it like you do any other second language. You get people to use it orally. You get them to write it into reports. You get them feedback. You get them into a culture where they see the point of it. 
so the I've argued for years, uh, we uh, acquiring academic languages, the language of physics or linguistics or social science or biology is acquiring another language. And the same principles that acquire for language acquisition apply to it, which is the good, uh, which people like Halliday and Martin have and others have pointed out. But in the United States, this is surprisingly a very contentious issue. And, you know, a lot of the postmodern people argue that the language of science is just a bunch of jargon meant to exclude people. Right. I mean, those are the postmodernists, and that's that's a theoretical debate. But I think what you say about what the scientists themselves see, right, the people, the practitioners themselves, is also very true and also problematic. I mean, the fact that they, I mean, even the physicists, okay, I haven't worked with physicists, so I don't know, but I have worked with mathematicians. Um, they still cannot just drop an equation on the table and say, see, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it doesn't speak for itself. So you still have it to create the context or yeah. the problem or the method, whatever yeah. it might be. And that necessarily so in, in brings natural language back then. Right. Yeah. In the sciences, of course, like in math, you have to you, you have to think and many mathematicians think in images or in patterns. But uh, the language of mathematics is essential to learning enough of it that you can get enough experience so that you can have those patterns and those skills, right? Physics is not just speaking, but the tool is the access to the community and to communication so that you can get the practices that give you the experience uh, in physics. Uh, so, but, you know, I think that scientists, when they downplay the role of language, it's, it's easy. Anybody who knows the language well does not find it difficult. Uh, years ago, I was when I was doing my work on video games, I studied kids who were seven years old playing Yu-Gi-Oh. Yu-Gi-Oh is a card game. It has 10,000 cards. Each card is written at like a college level. They were written. They're very complicated language. And you can't play the game without reading the cards because the thing on the card tells you what the card does in the game, what you got to do. Right. So it's a real dilemma. And yet seven-year-olds are playing it. And I had shown from a linguistic stuff, it's like at a 12th grade or 14th grade level. And I asked the kids, because they not only read the card, they argue over the rules in this same language. So I said to the seven-year-old, well, do you realize that you guys are reading and talking a very complex language? And the kids said, what are you talking about? It's simple. Well, it's simple because they know it. Right. But people will say, oh, if the language of physics, language, math, is very hard. Well, every language is very hard until you know it. Once you know it, that language becomes something that's kind of almost invisible to you. Right. But the thing is, um, people, you know, would educators say, well, if you're going to teach Yu-Gi-Oh, you put them in classrooms and you have grammar drills. No, you play Yu-Gi-Oh communally, you learn the language. And pretty soon something that adults think are very hard and should have not motivated the child is highly motivating. Same thing would happen with math or science if we taught it correctly. People would have a passion for it. They would see it. They would learn it as an oral language or written language. They'd see it as the access to activities that are life enhancing. And pretty soon they'd tell you, well, it isn't very hard.
<laughs> that's wonderful i mean that that, that just meshes so well with um, some other guests i've had on the program talking about education and motivation and how these are just so intimately connected that to try to separate out the two i mean just the word drill doesn't make any sense i mean uh, there's yeah, the, the exactly. saying that goes the saying that goes so well there of practice as you play because you'll play as you practice which is exactly right, what exactly. you're describing there and and this idea exactly. that you need I mean that you could that you could have scientists actually doing original work already as undergrads. You know, I mean, yeah. there's nothing actually sure. holding Absolutely. you back from that. Yeah. Nothing at all. Well, so the one of the things we should keep in mind today, thanks to social media and what I call affinity spaces, that is these spaces in the internet where if I'm interested in robotics, there's thousands of places I can go. People will help me. They'll mentor me. They'll teach me. Uh, I can choose one that's very nurturing and how they teach one that's tough love. I can do whatever I want. A, a seven-year-old become an expert in anything. If you want to put in the passion, the time, then uh, today we live in a world that outside of school, outside of credentials, no matter what your age is, you can get to a PhD level. And many kids have done it. That's that's uh, encouraging in a way because it shows what it is uh, encouraging. Our, it shows our, that the credentials may be getting in the way. I, you know, the, very early on in this, there was a story in one of the books. I mean, very early on, but tell, they had a, a thing where a site where you could get free legal advice. And then, you know, typical of these sites, you'd get a, a points. And so the guy that had the highest rating for the best advice was just adulated. Uh, and it was anonymous. She didn't know. Either. Well, somebody uncovered that the guy with the highest rating was 16 years, 16 year old Latino kid. And everybody got upset and threw him off the site. And they asked him, how did you learn law? He'd never been law. So I learned it on court TV. Then it all of a sudden dawned on him. Wait a minute. Why did we throw him out? If he's giving the best legal advice, why do we care where he learned it? You see, or what credential he has. So then he's back on as the best legal advisor. So the, the point is that um, we have got a system that gauges your smarts by credentials, but also how quickly you got them, right? If it took me, you know, eight years to get through college, I'm a bum. It took you three, you're a genius, right? In, in the real world of knowledge, no one cares how long it took you to learn it. And no one cares what credential you have. Now we're in a world where you can, you can prove that. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to go to Princeton, but it does mean that there are people finding very life-enhancing uh, lives doing knowledge work on the Internet. You know, remember, there was a game called Fold It where everyday people help scientists find the right folds for proteins. And, in they, and, and a group of them, a guild, so it was dozens of people, discovered the, uh, the right fold for the protein that causes AIDS, and it had eluded scientists for 20 years. Somebody said, we have to give the whole group the Nobel Prize. <laughs> I, I have to, uh, uh, Jim, take a, a slight uh, sort of, it's not a U-turn exactly, but it's its <laughs> its going in a slightly different direction because there was one topic that I certainly wanted to broach with you and we're approaching the end of our interview. So uh, I'm just going to sort of throw it out there. And it's about stories and narratives uh, in in discourse. So we're, 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 we're going beyond the sentence level to the text level and even into the cultural level. If we, if we think back to uh, James Martin and, and his work on genre, for example, he, he, he had some fascinating things to talk about there in, in the area of stories. But I wanted to bring it up in this very specific context because I have... Um, heard pretty much every scientist and anyone who helps scientists write talk about 
what's the storyline? Where's the story? If you're going to be trying to think through or explain something, even linguists, it's naturally going to appear in a story. And, and I have to say that I don't entirely buy that. That's, that's my stand right. on that. I, yeah, I think I, that there's I more. I, I don't buy it either. Uh, stories can be very good for some things, absolutely. But the other thing about a story is uh, it can get repeated a lot, and we begin to see the uh, world through the story without thinking how to retell it. Uh, let me back up a little bit. So you brought up earlier that you know grammar seems very detached from society and culture and how we communicate. Well, that's an artifact of the field. Chomsky... Uh, argued and he changed the field that the only scientific part of linguistics is the study of grammar. In his sense of grammar, by the way, he meant the deep structure or the abstract structure of language that was universal, not prescriptive grammar. Uh, and he thought and argued that any that we humans were not good at studying the social. We couldn't really have scientific theories of the social, right? So he 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 saw things like social linguistics or studying discourse analysis or social aspects of language as uh, less scientific. And in and, and, and for the early days, they were not, therefore, very popular. Right. Um, so uh, but they are deeply connected. So let me and I don't have the time to go into this detail, but just very quickly, let me say that there are several levels of meaning, one level of meaning, which is connected to grammar is categories, right? Language is a set of categories, fish, dog, cat, whatever it is. Now, in everyday language, those categories are often vague, right? I, it, I, I, there is no necessary and sufficient conditions of who's bald, right? There are many categories that are vague, and so we have to agree where the boundaries of the categories are, and we have name for these categories. Now, it, every since category names and their meanings are vague often in everyday language, science tends to adopt a different criteria for what's the category that isn't vague. So the chemists use the, uh, the word heat quite differently than we use it, heat and temperature differently than we use them in everyday language because they use them in a much more demarcated way. So that's one level of meaning of categories. Another uh, level of meaning are uh, the kind of literal meanings of words. So, you know, uh, democracy means representative government, right? And that's also in the grammar. That's in the dictionary, so to speak, what linguists call the lexicon. Now, that's where grammar ends because those categories and those meanings that are uh, definitional, basic, have to, in context, be adjusted. So if I say to you, they, they are what I call, they become what I call situated meanings. In the context, we have to give them a specific, more nuanced meaning. So if I say to you in a context about digital media, uh, I say, well, it's turning into a one-click democracy. You don't just apply the word representative government there. You now realize I'm saying clicks are like votes. Votes on clicking clicks as votes have more power than votes in an election, right? You're you are now situating meaning in context based on your knowledge of the people you're communicating and the context stream. Those are situated meanings. Now we have passed uh, the border from grammar to the beginning of the social aspects, the conventional aspects of meaning. We couldn't do it unless grammar gave us the categories and the definitional meanings. Grammar gives us the structural meanings. We make up the situational meanings.
Now, most of those situational meanings are quite conventional, right? If I say to you, um, the, the coffee spilled, go get a mop and clean it up, you immediately know it's coffee is liquid, not coffee is grains or tins or anything else, right? It's very conventional. Even though it's situated, it's social, uh, we all know how to do it, right? So let's call those conventional social meanings. Then... There are also social meanings you make up because you've had a lot of shared experience. You have culture, you have history. These meanings are bounded around. They're what I call thematic meanings, right? Uh, you know, metaphorical, deep insights into how things are connected. So we go from grammar all the way to the other uh, sphere. Now, I, I recently, so I'm, I'm recently been very uh, taken by chat GPT-4. And, uh, it, you know, because it's, it says such beautiful stuff, right? You, you, you use it and you get reams and reams of gr grammatically correct language that makes sense, right? And it's very clear that it gets the categories, right? And it's very clear it gets the definitional meanings, right? Which is interesting because it doesn't know any meaning at all. And it can get most situational meanings. I mean, if you give it a, you know, uh, one-click democracy and probably figure out you're talking about social media because it knows about patterns. But I wanted to test it on something I had done years ago. I had shown how little kids, when they were at sharing time in school, this is where you get up in the beginning of the school day and you share something. And in this early research, it turned out that African American, some African-American kids, when they shared, they told a story that was kind of deeply thematic. It had kind of deeper meanings. And the other kids tended to just do reports. I went swimming with my mother. I made hot dogs or whatever. And these stories the black kids told were not very well received by the teachers because they couldn't really understand them. And so I took some of them very early in my career and showed that they were really capturing, even as seven-year-old children, kind of deep thematic meanings embedded in black culture. I had one was about uh, you know family making cakes for a grandmother. And the little girl does it in very poetic ways. It's very much like oral culture storytelling, oral poetry. And the real theme of the story is the grandmother and her greed keeps eating the cakes and eventually goes to get a cake at a bakery. And the little child says, now she's coming out with a cake we didn't make. And she gets sick. And the real deep theme of the story is the grandmother's not paying attention to the cake only as a material thing to eat, not as a sign of family membership. And when the leader of the culture misses how to read signs, then that's dangerous. Now, this, is, this may sound very weird, except this idea about reading signs correctly and the dangers when leaders in the cultures don't really is embedded in hundreds of years of black culture. And you can see why, because for most of their time in America, reading signs wrong was gonna be very dangerous. So she's picked up an, or, an oral way to tell stories that's poetic as part of a culture that's hundreds of years old. And in it, she's got these meanings, one of which is the importance of reading signs correctly that is deeply thematically embedded in black culture. There's others. So I gave, you know, the kind of thematic meanings of the story based on the history and culture of black uh, Americans. And I wondered, you know, I gave chat this story and I asked him what it meant in several different ways. And he gets all the categories, right? He gets all the contextual meanings, right? He gives you a summary of the story that is a um, blow by blow, but 
entertaining summary, and he misses every thematic meaning in it, every one of them. Why? He has no culture. He has no shared experience. He has no shared history. So um, the, the thing is, what intrigues me about chat is all the conventional stuff. We've been talking about social conventions a lot here. The categories are conventional. The literal meanings are conventional. Most of the situated meanings that are not deeply thematic, not deeply embedded in our culture's experiential history are conventional. He gets all that right and, and right enough that it freaks us out. But when you ask him to do the thing that's most human, that is to, to look through the language's literal meanings into the deeper cultural, historical, experiential things that have situated us as humans in the world. He can't get it close to it. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I, I wonder if that level, that thematic level, is is not the the genre level that James Martin had in mind. I mean, he he brought up this wonderful image of there are few genres in a culture. the The image of a culture is more like the galaxies up in the sky, whereas the grammar that we have of perhaps even the conventional type situated meaning, meanings, right? Let's say even sort of greeting rituals or every, everything has sort of a, a set of stages to it. Your example of the coffee mug being knocked over and so on. We know, you know, spill, clean up, it, it, maybe even it, who did it, right? I mean, these there, there's optional stages in it and so on. And of course, this can... This has constituency. This this has uh, a structuring capabilities. It has a system behind it. But when we get up out into real context, because I believe James Martin was was putting genre out into the context, into reality. Yeah, uh, we realize that the artificial intelligence is artificial. Right. Uh, yeah. So genres, though, uh, we could say some, something similar about genre we said about language. Genres are in the beginning conventional, right? So telling a story, a story, in my view, is a narrative with a point or a plot, right? Uh, if we define it that way, that genre exists across every culture in the world, right? And each of them has a different conventional way to tell stories, right? Uh, uh, American stories... <laughs> tend to be in three parts, right? Uh, Athabascan stories in five parts. We tend to have a certain type of beginning in it. So at one level, genres are conventional. But then the genre-like story becomes totally embedded in a culture and connects to all its other parts. And once it does that, it generates meanings that are quite different from your culture. Right. And so the story being told, just like the chat example, you from another culture can get it literally. But then you'll say, but I really, what's the deep? You might even say, what in the hell is the point of the story? Because the point is often invisible to you because the story genre was there as a structural form to carry through history these deeper meanings. Right. So it's the same, uh, the same thing. Uh, you know, a good example is in. One of the reasons the African-American kids and the, the certain African-American kids in the sharing time told these poetic stories uh, is in their culture, uh, when you ask for a story, it means something that is elaborated, partly fantasy, uh, exaggerated, 
done poetically to entertain and also trigger the audience's participation and to get the audience to think about a theme that you never directly state, but that you suggest. That's what story meant to that little girl. And the teacher hadn't got the foggiest idea story meant that. She thought story meant narrative, blow-by-blow report. So she said the kid was lying. The kid was making stuff up, right? She asked for the genre and got it, but didn't recognize it. Now, chat wouldn't recognize it either. Well, this 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 probably brings us then full circle to close out because I I am interested though in this idea of okay the introduction to a research article it's it it needs to have a storyline yeah that you are making a conclusion and 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 there you have some sort of a re- resolution involved right some some character on some level and i have to put quotation marks around it some subject is in your research being challenged by something there's an obstacle and it's overcome these are the things that people say and think about on a sort of general level when they're talking about in a research article there is a storyline and and there again i just run into the problem of I, i it's not it's not really happening that way is it no, and it's not, it doesn't have, that's per- perfectly one good way. What we need to know when we read an article is how it connects to the coherent body of theory and fact in that area. If we don't see the connections, uh, we can't really evaluate its importance. Or, and if we only see superficial connections, we see it as just another brick in the wall, right? I, I think of Forrester's famous thing, only connect. It, what has to be there is connections, ways that signal to the reader, how does this connect to the body of knowledge in a way that gives it a deeper point than it's just a brick. That's what you need. Scientists are not always very, very good at but that is a, a very important thing. So one of the things you often see in areas that I'm familiar with, the more social and education, uh, uh, you see lit surveys that are supposed that are just telling you what all that was said before. And now you say lit survey shouldn't be that. A lit survey said, how did what I'm about to tell you emerge from that literature? How did that literature suggest it? And how that what I'm going to tell you will change you, how you think about that literature. That's connecting. And if a story does it, stories are one way to connect. So good. But there's other ways. But this overtly making connections uh, so that the reader knows not only the point, but is there any deep point to this? Does it, does it make me reconfigure the uh, body of knowledge? That is uh, not rewarded. Right, because remember, what meant lots of work in academics is just about getting enough publications to get tenure and a merit increase. It's hard as it's hard to get published now because there's so many uh, publications. It's expensive. It, it the more novel you try to be, the less likely you are to get accepted. Uh, so uh, the encouragement of the system is to do it as conventionally as possible. On the other hand, if you really wanted to have impact in the field, it's only by this way you connect your thing to the field to make somebody participate in rethinking the field that's going to make you an important scientist. 
recontextualization maybe is yeah, that yeah, yeah that's what's that yeah. reconfiguring recontextualizing it also then means you as a reader have a shot at getting an idea of what you could do fantastic well thank you very much for that jim thank you that for having is, me it was great that is uh, james g professor at arizona arizona state university his books are what is a human? Introducing discourse analysis and very many others. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Jim. Goodbye. And goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.